I don't want to like Annabelle this right now, but I really don't know like what to bring to this scenario for our opening bit. It's a difficult time, I'll say that. I mean, is anything even funny anymore? Welcome, everyone, to the American Girls Podcast. This is the podcast where we're reliving the American Girls series book by book. I'm Mary. I'm still Allison. And we're here for book five of Addie. We're here for Addie Saves the Day. We could use an Addie right about now. We could use an army of Addies right, now, right about now. How are yeah. you? How are you in these tense times? You know, I'm working from home. I'm very grateful for that. I'm very glad that I'm still able to work. And, you know, the days kind of slip into each other. I feel like the sort of entity saving my day is the 90 Day Fiance franchise because <laughs> yep. I watch about four hours of it every night before I go to sleep at wow. 1 or 2 a.m. So that's, thank you. That's a real commitment. Thank you to that community. Thank you. I saw something so disturbing last night, a spoiler, because before the 90 Day was on last night, aired last night, I'll probably be watching it tonight, and I saw something about Eddie that transpired with Eddie and his fiance. Oh, no. Basically, they hooked up, and I just screamed. Like, no context, just screamed. You see something on Twitter sometimes, and you're like, I just can't. Like, why? So... I do have to say that that show has brought so much levity and joy to my life because I think like we're both very intrigued by people who are scammers. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason why I keep returning to that well is like the question is not who is scamming whom. It's like everyone is being scammed and to what end. Exactly. Like that's why everyone. And it's like, okay, this kind of relates to another reality show I'm watching now for the first time that I've tried to make you watch. It's on your list. I know you're getting there. But it's like this world of reality where everyone's a scammer, but then also everyone simultaneously thinks that they should be treated with sincerity and is absolutely outraged if someone scams them. So I'm also watching Love Island UK, which, you know, in these dark times, it was a coworker's birthday. All she wanted was for us to watch episode one of season three of Love Island UK with her. So we watched the first half hour on a lunch break, and then I've continued watching it. This this show, Allison, if you've not seen it, it's like upstairs, downstairs on a tropical island where I have to watch with closed captioning because I cannot understand a word of what's being said. But everyone is simultaneously saying things like, you know, never have I ever been in a fivesome. And people are like, yep, that was me. But then simultaneously, they're like, oh, my God, I can't believe you'd ask me if I kissed her yet. Like, that's so personal. Oh, my God, I'm so, like, betrayed by you. How dare you ask me such a personal question? It's like, what is happening here? I love that. It's it's a lot. I'm deeply concerned everyone's going to get skin cancer. So I'm just, mm. you know, trying to do that. There's a cast member who was in a boy band that I've never heard of, which is no shade because there was so many during its peak. But he keeps trying to make it a thing where he's like, yeah, don't tell anybody. But I used to be in Blazing Squad. And people are like, cut to testimonial. <laughs> people are like, huh? They just have no we're idea. Trying. They're like, we're trying. Yeah, but ninety before the 90 day, 90 day, it's like... It's so dark, but it's so compelling. In the same way that X-Files tagline was, I want to believe. (laughs) It's like, that's also everyone on this show. They're like, I want to believe. I want this to be true. And I think it brings up bigger questions of like, what can you actually manifest in your life? I also think like, you had no idea how spot on you were when we talked about Kirsten communicating through notes only. A staggering number of participants in this universe can only communicate over translator app. And I'm like, okay, well, that's obviously an asset, you know, like an aspect of the human experience that we just weren't familiar with. It's a shock to me every single time I see these couples doing this where I'm like, literally last season, a couple had to use the app during their wedding ceremony. Yes, yes. Like he could not understand his vows. He can't have basic conversation with her. Like, yeah. I, I just can't. There's so many scenarios running through my head where I'm like, what do you mean you can't speak to her? Like, a hundred years ago, and this is wrong. Like, I will say, like, this is obviously wrong. Part of the conversation around women's suffrage was women took on their husband's sort of, Im- Im- not immigration status, but like citizenship status, right? And a famous example of this was Consuelo Vanderbilt, who married a duke, and then she no longer had the rights of an American citizen, and she was rich enough to be able to fight that. It's like, 
that's not right. Right. But I think, like, some semblance of, like, cultural melding or just, like, some shared lexicon is useful. I mean, it's, like, shout out to the Cable Act of 1924 question. I think the year is correct. Yes. But it's also, like, you're right. People shouldn't have to surrender their American status. People entering our country should not have to surrender the facets of their culture. But surely there's a middle ground that is yeah. not, I rely on Google Translate to get through my own wedding ceremony. No. Also, the plotline on Before the 90 Day, this season of Lisa and her boyfriend, who is an emerging rapper who goes by the name Soja Boy. Yes, he does. His handle is so bothersome to me because it's like of any rapper that you were going to kind of play on, like Soja Boy, that's the one you pick. No, I mean, I don't. I'm sure he's familiar on some levels about like histories of of conflicts and and genocide, of course. But I also think he's operating on such a strange plane of human existence, partially fed by the delusions of his girlfriend, who says things like, "Until now, I hadn't met a famous person." Oh my god! And someone made a meme, and they were like, "Lisa, you still have not." Somebody also posted a meme of them together, and it was like when you take a picture with your teacher on the last day because (laughs) there's such an age difference. And it's like she's not even nice. Like she's not even kind to him. Never mind that there's such a difference between them and worlds and like she has no idea what his world is like. She's actively mean to him and hostile. And were we not in the midst of a global pandemic, I would be calling the UN to see what could be done on his behalf. But it's like, man, a green card's not worth this. It's really not. I think he's going to shock us all. And on the last episode in testimonial, like, you know how they make them talk in present tense the whole time? Yes. In his last moments or like on the reunion show when he's there inevitably by webcam because these people are never getting married. They're never actually going to be together. Nope. He's going to go off on like what to most of the world, but not us, will be unexpected. He'll be like, I'm giving you a blow-by-blow history of conflicts caused by the United States that have resulted in civil war and child soldiers. And Lisa will be like, no. And he'll be like, Lisa, Lisa, let me finish. And they're going to start to try to like play the single that he wrote on top. I'll be there for you. And he's like, that's actually about the U.S. intervening needlessly in like recently formed African nation politics and he's like it's been here the whole time and then the Rembrandts enter the scene and they're like actually I'll be there for you the Friends theme song was commenting on similar issues but no one picked up on it it was a history of whiteness with friends do you think Henry Kissinger makes 90 day fiance 100% I mean only someone who's truly evil at their core (laughs) would create their show that's right it has to be him I am shocked periodically to remind myself that he's still alive. He just published a huge piece about how, like, this is going to change geopolitics. And it's like, honestly, boy who cried, this will change (laughs) geopolitics. You've done enough. If you don't know about Henry Kissinger, we'll do an episode. It's not our issue. We could get into it. We probably shouldn't. No, we were going to talk about the Madam C.J. Walker show on Netflix, Self Made, which I think is actually a very helpful entree into Addie book five. Number one, there's a character named Addie correct. in the show. Correct. Number two, like Madam C.J. Walker is kind of like if we had Addie 30 years later, like you could see a lot of overlap in terms of like their trajectory. Like Madam C.J. Walker comes of age, like just past the end of slavery and is able to become the first like fully self-made uh, female millionaire. Sorry, Kylie. Um, <laughs> while working in the beauty industry. But what's important, I think, is like they're still facing a lot of the same issues. Like people are really not taking her seriously. She's still not able to open a lot of doors. And she's trying to kind of like find a, a way for herself. So I think there is a lot of connection. Yeah. And I look forward to hearing more of those because you're ahead of me. I think you've completed the series and I've seen mm-hmm. three episodes so far. So, I mean, I left off with the episode where she negotiates a meeting with Booker T. Washington and that was also very fraught. So we'll get into that presumably. When we used to do, like when we dabbled in teaching, I'll say dabbled for me, I used to call them um, lap textbook essays 
where I felt like someone sat with a textbook on their lap and looked at like every fifth sentence and then strung together a weekly essay. Mm -hmm. And there's elements of self-made that feel like that. Mm -hmm. Like someone had a basic textbook on like African-American history from late 1800s through the 1930s. Where I think the series is really spectacular is I think when they got to Harlem, whoever made this got really interested and was like, okay, this is going to be like the real shining part of the show and read entire books on it because that part is so dynamic. It's so interesting Mm -hmm. and it's a lot deeper than kind of the earlier episodes. Yeah, the Booker T sequences feel like ripped from a textbook where it's like here's bullet points on things that he believed yeah and there was a great piece i will say this um right around the time this series launched the national museum of african-american history and culture released a great history of the hot comb and of certain kinds of makeup and hair product to coincide with the history of madam cj walker oh cool she she first made money through different kind of product that would make hair grow And then she specifically opened salons for African-American women. And she didn't invent the hot comb, but she did kind of pioneer all these new and and better ways to use it. So Very interesting. Well, yeah, we'll have to. I know I haven't seen the Harlem episodes yet, but I know you said there's some excellent uh, counterpoints for things we see in this book. So maybe we should just dive right in. Are you ready for Addie Saves the Day? I've, I've never been more ready. Yeah. Let's do it. This episode is brought to you by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to advertisers for native podcast sponsorships. What does that actually mean? Well, for our purposes, it means that we don't have to run ads on our show for products and services we don't believe in. We take this community really seriously, so we've in an ongoing way been trying to match with products that actually meet our mission and our values and are things that we're proud to support. So Podcorn has been a really wonderful service where we've been able to log on to their site and find a bunch of advertisers who want to work with us that we're excited to work with as well. If you're creator and you're looking for brands that you might want to work with, Podcorn is a great option. They have a marketplace mission to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and control. And you never give up exclusive rights to your podcast. Click the link in our show notes to learn how to sign up and to learn more about Podcorn. That's right. So just head over to podcorn.com and get started today. So this book came out in 1994. Okay. And I'm going to need you to bear that in mind. Got it. And I have some things that are shocking to tell you, some things that are not. Oh, God. Okay. But you're don't worry. You're always prepared. So official summary. After the Civil War ends, many families like Addie's are searching for their loved ones. This summer, Addie's church is putting on a fundraising fair to help people hurt by the war. When Addie has to work at the fair with snobby Harriet, I don't like that editorializing, but we'll come back to that. Fair. Their feud heats up again until tragedy forces the girls to soften their hearts. The fair is a great success. Then suddenly the girls discover that the money they've raised has been stolen. Addie saves the day, which ends with a wonderful surprise. Mary, what is the surprise? Sam is back in town. What's changed about Sam? He's lost an arm. In the war. He's lost an arm. Addie and Harriet basically reconcile at this fair because Harriet finds out that one of her family members, her uncle, who's been serving in the Union Army, has died. Mm-hmm. This book packs a lot into a picnic, okay? This book has so much going on, so many plot points, so many moods, so many different things. The peek into the past is like I texted you earlier, like we didn't start the fire. Like there's just so many weird topics to throw together that it was impossible for me to wrap my head around. I read this book admittedly very late at night. So then I revisited it today and I was like, okay, in the clear light of day, am I, is this what I remember it being? And I was in fact remembering correctly, but I have to say, and I know that we've been, we've had really high praise for Connie throughout. And I do mean that, but this is probably my least favorite Addie book so far. This is also my least favorite Addie book, but it made me think about the Kirsten, Josefina and Felicity books. Mm -hmm. I don't like the premise of the saves the day. Say more. 
we talked about this a lot and you kind of opened my eyes to this with Josefina of like the cultural and effective labor that she was expected to do for the family. Right. I don't like the premise. Like part of why these books are so interesting to me is they're not superhero books, which is not a shade at superhero. Those are just not narratives that I sought out. I like people solving problems and kind of untangling mysteries. These books always feel so contrived to me because I'm just waiting for the crisis and I'm waiting for a nine or 10 year old to be successful in solving like either a huge problem or a problem that's so trivial. I don't know why I got 60 pages. I'm totally with you. And it seems like I am totally fine with the premise of children's books where children solve problems, but I prefer to be it to be problems that they've identified as needing solving and solve, as you say, in kind of like childlike ways. Like Harriet the Spy to me is really interesting because it's a however old she is, nine, 10 year old. I forget her exact age. But I mean, part of the joy of that book is it's from her perspective and her just sort of like cooking the books and kind of dreaming mm-hmm. up problems that then she inserts herself into and sometimes makes worse before she makes better. And I love her sides about her parents where she's like, wow, like marriage is weird. I never want to do that. And it's like all of this just <laughs> stuff that's just interesting. Whereas with Addie, it's like you're saying there's so much of, of emotional labor for the family that comes through in this book that I find really troublesome and it took me out of it. it took me back to Josefina times and Kirsten and so on like just to get into it like when we start the book we're with Addie and her parents in a garden patch in basically a community garden that they've rented a plot in to raise vegetables to sell to fund the dad going back to the plantation where they lived to explore what happened to Esther and Sam and reunite the family. So from the jump, we have a theme of reunion that I think we'll have to keep returning to throughout the book Mm -hmm. is like, it's really high stakes. And Addie is very invested in this garden. And, you know, immediately, like on page 10, Harriet appears from nowhere and bullies her and says, well, 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 if it isn't the little plantation girl. And it's like, first of all, where did where was she like where did she come from because this is described as being a mile from their boarding house i don't believe harriet if she's that rich would be living in a place with a community garden plot like i think she's probably living in another part of town so she just appears says something truly venomous like cast aspersions on sam's character and is like oh yeah your Mm -hmm. brother sam who probably never served in the army not unlike my uncle who's like killing it he killing others, probably earning awards. He's going to come home. We're going to throw this huge party for him. And your brother is like question mark. Like this is beyond cruel, like to enter the scene and call her a plantation girl. And also to say like your brother didn't serve and who knows where he is. And my uncle's amazing. Like to me, that sort of took me out of it because it was like Harriet became a caricature in that moment Mm -hmm. for me. It was like, so not real. And, but then after that, so there's this, as you mentioned in the recap, um, fair to raise money for a lot of relief organizations to reunite um, black families after the war. And they want to contribute to this with a coalition of churches contributing. And Harriet shows up and has her own ideas of how they, the children should raise money, which is her idea is a magic show. Some other kid is like pie eating contest. And Addie throws out spool puppets, question mark. We'll return to that in a minute. I'm not fully sure I understand what that is still, but... Addie's idea gets chosen and she's kind of peacocking afterwards to her parents Mm -hmm. like, ooh, like my idea got picked, like that'll show Harriet. And her parents immediately shame her for this in ways that like also took me out of it. So just to get to that scene, this is on 29, starts on 29. Papa says, you're disappointing me with that boastful pride, Addie. Um, You know, the fair isn't a contest. And then we get this narration on 30, quote, Addie felt a warm flush of shame spread over her face. And basically her parents say, you need to make peace with each other. You and Harriet need to make peace with each other. The whole vibe of this and the timing of this book where it's very clear that they're all struggling with the trauma of the war, Mm -hmm. with the dislocation it's meant for their family. And Addie is having what feels like a very human nine-year-old moment. And immediately the parents are like, shame. You're also like, that was excellent analysis, but you're not addressing that Harriet suggested a magic show, which honestly is a very good idea. This is where you and I part ways. (laughs) No, I know. Absolutely not. (laughs) 
No, but you're you're absolutely right. Like the warm flush of shame. And I agree with you that like it also felt a little out of character for me, the way that that was handled. Like I, I like that she and Sarah were sort of having a side conversation because like that felt real to me where they were like, okay, here goes Harriet again. Or like we wish she'd disappear. I was like, that's a good line. Good for you guys. I think maybe we're missing the dynamic she had when it was just her and the mother like against the world. And now I think, you know, we talked a little bit off mic before there's a lot going on with the parents. Like they're trying to reconcile the fact that they have one child out of three. Mm -hmm. There's another piece to this, which is interesting. The mother is pretty much the only person to mention like, because Addie is always bringing up Sam and Esther. And it's the mother who says like, okay, we're also missing you know, your, your grand, the, the people that they refer to sort of as like grandparents. Right. Right. And like, I think what the mother is kind of missing is like a network of support that was familiar to her. Like now they're part of the church. They're part of this kind of bizarre community, but it's still not the people that she grew up with. It's not the people she imagined like Addie running to. And it's like, where's my dear? Like, I just got attached to her. I know. Oh, my God. I thought the exact same thing. Like, and you're mean to tell me Madeira wouldn't want anything to do with this fundraiser? Like, she would be so central to it. This one felt, but I felt this way about other book fives where I feel like we kind of jump out of the narrative to fit a type. Yes. Where it's like, okay, we need to have her, like, save the day. I feel like we just did a fire with Kirsten, but I feel like it would have made more sense to have something a little bit more practical, like, like a highly realistic moment of like there's a fire at the boarding house or there's some kind of other situation. Mm-hmm. The way that she saves the day is very odd in this book. So she catches someone stealing the money that they've raised through this bazaar and through this like honestly inexplicable puppet show. Like I, I just really I need someone to, to literally it. like walk me through it. Like I don't understand. <laughs> we don't have to get into it, but it's like I don't no. get it. I didn't understand it either, but also, like, I have, like, a weird relationship with puppets. Like, I both what? love them. Sorry, and- what? <laughs> what does <laughs> like, that I think, mean? I think puppets are fascinating. I think they can be really cool. But these are not puppets. Like, they're they're marionettes made out of Like, don't you schools. think Frank Oz would have watched this and been like, this is not my craft? Like, if it's someone was like, hey, person who's made Miss Piggy famous and Kermit, like, your thoughts on this spool puppet show? And he's like, mm-mm. I don't want to flex too hard, but our institution of our doctoral programs does have the premier puppetry programs not a huge in the deal. United States. So, not a huge you know, deal. You got to pull some strings to get in. You know, that's, <laughs> that's common. Um, but in all seriousness, I was like, I don't know that I really understand this. And I think something that we've loved about Addie is like the human connections that she makes and the strength of those connections. Yes. And this time... And again, to go back to self-made very briefly, Madam C.J. Walker and a woman incidentally named Addie are are at odds and, and have a tension across the series. And that's the part of the show that I like the least and feels inorganic to me for a variety of reasons. And in this book, I felt the same way where Harriet and Addie's tension, it doesn't feel it doesn't feel as interesting to me as her and Sarah's friendship. And I wanted to see some triangulation where Sarah, Addie, and Harriet kind of like have it out or don't. Yeah. Like Sarah is noticeably absent in this book and it shows. I think it does show. And I think what would have been more interesting, like you're saying, is some kind of plot line that's like the war is over, but not for me. And mm-hmm. and in very different ways. And and showing the different ways that members of a free black community in Philadelphia in this time would have been processing that and having very different opinions about what that should look like. Whereas I feel like the book has really doubled down on a theme of reunion in ways that sometimes aren't helpful. Like, and that's not unique to this book. You know, if you've read books on the civil war and its aftermath, you'll know, I mean, there's a famous book called race and reunion that reunion is a very major theme and how people talk about the years after the civil war. Like how did the country go on as a union transforming from these United States, sort of a compact view to the United States? How did this happen? 
And there's famous images at the reunion at Gettysburg where white veterans, Confederate and Union, are shaking hands across a table. And it's like, wow, look, they reunited. They worked it out. And the punchline of that book, Race and Reunion, is they worked it out because they found a common thing to reunite over, which is white supremacy. Mm -hmm. Um, So in a weird way, Connie Porter is inverting that to say, here's what reunion, a reunion theme among a black community or in a black family would look like in Philadelphia, which is that, you know, reuniting their family is how to become whole or how to kind of go on after this war. And everything banks on that, including really orchestrating the plot so that you have even a son return in ways that feel impossible to me. Um, whereas I do, I think for my money, what I would have done is, um, maybe focus more on mourning. Like, I think you're mm. I, the point you make about the saving the day, taking us out of it to fit that type, I think is so, so key because I think if we weren't tied to Addie saving the day, I would almost a book that really just is almost a meditation on mourning where it's like, what do mm. you do with this life now that you supposedly are part of the side that won the war, but you're living with so much loss every day. Like, what does that feel like? We left the last book, um, you know, just a few days before Lincoln is assassinated. Right. And so something that was done in one of the supplementals, um, Addie Studies for Freedom. Oh, Addie Studies Freedom. Okay. Is Addie and her father actually go to see Lincoln's casket Hmm. because he came through Philadelphia. Um and, and that's kind of an interesting plot to meditate on. I think about that and I think about like the high of Addie's chosen birthday, the high of that weekend, and then coming into the next week and having this president who maybe she believes in, right? Or, or at least like this kind of anchor of stability in the country, this leader dying, mm-hmm. being murdered, and then having his body come through your town there's a sense that like it's summertime in every kind of way and again like it's contrived right because they have to fit a seasonal schedule like the birthday is in spring and now it's summer like i we get that we understand like that was what they were told to do i almost would have rather had an addy in the summer of 1864 like you're saying like summertime sadness yes like how how is she grappling with this how are they all dealing with it I think the way it comes out in the first 30 or so pages is the way the parents are kind of stifling her. Yeah. It's kind of like the parents, and now I'm like really reading into it, but it's sort of like the parents because of their own very understandable trauma and processing. It's like they can't take one more thing. Like Mm -hmm. it's sort of like a powder keg. If we let one person ignite, we will all explode. So it's sort of like, Addie, we can't address this right now. Or like, none of us can really go there. There's a point in the book when Addie's mother says, like, of course, I think about Esther and Sam every day. And she has like a cry in her voice. And then she like shuts herself down. Like, I'm not going to let myself go there. Whereas I think like a summertime sadness book would allow us to kind of see the realities of life for this community in a way that I think would stand outside the other books we've read so far and should on purpose because the situation is so singular. And, you know, like there was such a focus on narratives of progress by structuring the books these way in ways that become not realistic. And I think I wonder internally what happened at Pleasant Company weighing this and with their board of advisors about, you know, how much do we have to stay with this narrative of progress or redefine what progress looks like in order to fit with the brand, but also be true to the history? Because I kind of like returning to the Lincoln's funeral theme like I wish it had been organized around that instead of a grand review of the troops in this fair because mm-hmm. if you read newspaper accounts of Lincoln's the there was a very long procession of his body through the union back to Illinois where he's buried and he actually his he his body was lying in state in Philadelphia April 23rd 1865 When you read newspaper accounts of his body being moved from the funeral train to City Hall in New York and Philadelphia and all these different stops, what you see is an account of the order of groups in the parade, which tells you everything about the social hierarchy of the town and the times. Mm. And in New York in particular, what they say is, you know, here's all these political groups, municipal groups, ethnic groups, the Irish are second to last, and then free people of color, black people are the absolute last. They're allowed to be part of the parade. And in the newspaper written by white people, it's presented as like, isn't this gracious 
that this mm. is happening for the so-called great emancipator. And I'm happy Connie's not buying into like the great emancipator trope for this book. But I do think that kind of parade would have actually allowed us to contribute to this idea that like freedom isn't what it's cracked up to be, or it's more complicated. There's sadness. There's a grieving process that goes with acknowledging that, yes, I'm free now, but I can't ride on a streetcar. I can't find my brother. I have no idea where my sister is. And I just think that would have in some ways been more satisfying to me as a reader. I know these books aren't for a 33-year-old woman, but no. <laughs> but I'm just Sadly. saying that's kind of how I feel. Because, I mean, parades as a trope are interesting because they tell you something about the social order in terms of the order in which people are allowed to march even now. Well, the two the two bad characters, air quotes, in this story are first Harriet, right, because of the way mm-hmm. that she treats others and her snobbishness. So there's like a class element. And the second character who is painted as a villain is the unnamed woman who steals the cash box. And when they catch her, they actually find out that she's stolen not just the proceeds from the mysterious puppet show, but she's stolen at least three different groups' money. So right. she has like this she big has $50. Cash. It's a lot of money. What is she carrying it in? Did you catch this? It was so bizarre to me. It's a beat-up carpet bag. It's a beat-up carpet bag. Hold on just one second. Hold on to your hat. No, I I thought this was, like, really, really strange. So this book is getting us into, like, the earliest months of Reconstruction, which will last approximately five years. I'm going to read a dictionary definition. Like, I'm doing it. Oh, my God. Please. I said, like, textbook on the lap paper. Carpet bagger, informal, derogatory. This is a bad, this is bad. Historical context, a person from the northern states who goes south after the Civil War to profit from Reconstruction. A person perceived as an unscrupulous opportunist. Example, the organization is rife with carpet baggers. This is like a very bizarre, like I get that a carpet bag is just like a thing mm-hmm. someone had in the time. Picture Mary Poppins bag right. if, if you haven't seen one. I get that it's a piece from the time, but the fact that the other person to sort of like commit a crime against Addie in this book as a carpetbagger is very odd. It's very strange because it seems out of place to have a carpetbagger wandering around Philadelphia. Right. And it's kind of like, you know, for some reason, the calls are coming from inside the house, (laughs) as you always say, when like actually like a member of the clan is like cutting the phone lines outside. So it's kind of strange. And again, it's like, you know, if you've listened to all our coverage of these different books, it's like, well, do you want it to be for a child or for you? You know, in some ways we want it to be written, obviously, for for children first. But when you read these Save the Day stories, the stakes are always all over the place Mm -hmm. because I think, again, it's such a contrivance in a series that values like realistic experiences over structure. And then this book to me always feels out of, because even the surprise, the surprises have ranged so much. I'm like fine with it. Also, Yeah. And also she brings back the trope of love. Like, mm-hmm. so Sam and, and Addie have this, you know, like this relationship where they use riddles to kind of entertain each other. And Sam tells her riddles and so on. So when he emerges in the end, it's because she's saying some of these riddles as part of the mysterious puppet show that we still don't understand. And she hears someone not like heckling, but saying like, oh, my sister could solve that one. It's like a skunk. And then she goes out and it's her brother. And she's like, oh, my God, I like, how did you get here? It's like, great question. We don't get an answer. And she notices he's like, she touches his sleeveless or like his sleeve without an arm. And he's like, yeah, I lost an arm. Don't worry about it anyway. And it's like, and she, the it ends with him, her asking, like, what is, I want to get this right. What keeps the family what together. What keeps the family together. And he, it's love. And it's like, to me, that's a callback to what I consider a sacred moment of her sharing mm-hmm. love cookies with Sarah, which felt very sincere and very tender. And this just was like so left field to me that I couldn't sit with it where I was kind of just like, I don't know, there was so much there that just felt really, really contrived. And she might feel like she has to do this to both fit the trope of the fifth book and get us to where we need to go to wrap this up in book six. But nonetheless, I was like, why are we having a black woman or black girl steal from the black community and have everyone policing that when she might be taking that money to redistribute in comparable networks? We don't know. And I'm not 
defending theft here, but I'm just saying, why are we having a black girl be the criminal in this book? I, I know. It I feels don't know. weird and not like the right move. And yeah, and even Sam's reemergence, it's like, sorry, how did he get here? Like, it just feels so incredible. A person who helped me with this a lot, like, I didn't think this day would ever come. And then I was like, okay, so I'm going <laughs> to, you're making like such a face of shock. No. Who was like our saving grace during Josefina? Uh, like a reviewer? Yes, Sierra is back. Oh, hey, Sierra. The speed is automatic, super, you know, all that. So Sierra is back. I literally wrote in my notes. I'm so relieved. She wrote like a three-page review of this book, which I will not read. I know I always say that, and then I read a part of it anyway. I loved this review so much. I'll just give you the opening line. Harriet makes a dastardly reappearance in this one. Damn. She then tells us that once she went to the library, they didn't have the preceding book. And so she says, so I don't know what happens there. Fair. I'm hoping the walkers have larger digs. But she makes a point that I found really critical. She also is with me on magic, which I appreciate. Oh, boy. She talks about this scene where Addie says, fast forward to the fair. Addie and Sarah are doing a puppet show and Harriet is working the cash box. Addie notices a tall, older girl wearing a nice dress but carrying a dirty old carpet bag. Addie finds the nice dress slash grungy carpet bag incongruous but isn't concerned until the cash box goes missing. She just knows the older girl stole it. I guess because that must be because she that's how she paid for her nice dress. I don't get it. Me either. Me neither. Same, Sierra. It's like, listen... We're supposed to believe that Addie has the inductive powers of Jessica Fletcher, who also in an episode identified a murderer who was wearing a shabby suit because she noticed he was wearing a rare, expensive pocket watch. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I just, I wouldn't pick that up. I don't assume Addie as a nine-year-old has that going on. I just don't like this idea that it's like a member of the community stealing from the community that then Addie has to like be the savior by policing it. Like, I just don't like that. I don't know. There's just too much going on in this book that by the end of it, you're almost sort of exhausted and you're like, I guess Sam is back, question mark. And like, it's just too much. And also I'm mad that they made it so that Harriet's uncle had to die to create a situation in which Harriet and Addie would reunite as friends. Yeah, that's the scene where Addie realizes and, and there's a line that that's when she sees her as just a girl. You know, this is where, you know, Harriet kind of opens up to her. And I think, again, like, we have been very much, um, we've been very laudatory of this whole series because we've really liked it. That scene was odd Mm -hmm. because it kind of reinforces a thing of, like, how much you should have to be vulnerable for other people to care about you. 100%. And it was sort of like, Harriet has this moment of real trauma. I'm going to say this, like, where is Harriet's family ever? Like, she probably has her own issues. Like, she has to have people over for ice cream because, like, maybe her mom isn't doing it. I don't know. Maybe she's not intolerant. Like, we don't know. But, like, (laughs) it divides that. was kind of jarring. It was jarring. And it kind of gets back to that scene with the shame with Addie that also was jarring for me. And I think something that, like, in terms of thinking about these books as things that can teach friendship to girls and, let's say, women readers of a certain age, dot, 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 us. So... I th- I'm, was returning to what Allison Merrick was saying to us in our Josefina episode with her about grief. And then also I went and read that Brene Brown book, The Gift of Imperfection, that she mentioned on that episode. And something that both of them talk about, Brene Brown and Allison Merrick, is that a kind of a way that you can show compassion for someone is to set a boundary with them. Mm-hmm. And I think that what would have been appropriate here as a lesson but and also works plot-wise is to say, hey, listen... Addie and Harriet don't get along, and that's actually totally okay. It is not Addie's job to find some way to reunite and bond with Harriet or for Harriet to have, like, a major life trauma so that she is, like, lowered or made vulnerable enough so that Ad- they can be speak as equals. Like, I just think it's weird that we force this friendship in this book when it's, like, a healthy lesson I wish I had learned earlier is, like, you don't actually have to be friends with everyone. It's okay to no. just be like, yeah, we're different. That's fine. You go over there, I'll stay over here. Great. That's. I think that's also very much like the culture of stories about girls in that period, though. Like, you think about, you know, and obviously the stakes are very different, but you think about Babysitter's Club 
was just going to say I that. remember watching the movies or, or reading different things and being like, these people do not all need to be friends. Like, you can be right. in a group of friends and be like, you know what? I like this cluster of people a little bit differently than right. I like this cluster of people this week. But also at the Babysitter's Club, I don't recall anyone not making the cut. Like, surely mm. as in a business, not everyone's getting hired who applies. And yet it's like everyone, they're like, we need to let everybody in. They're like, we're creating this whole tier of junior babysitters, like, just to make this it's all so work. so true. And it's like, not everyone needs to be friends. It's okay. Like, find your group. Stay with, you know, like, like-minded people or not like-minded people, but people who are good friends to you. Like, Sarah is a solid friend. Like... Yeah, she is. We didn't need this whole, like, we lost out on Sarah in book five to facilitate this entire plot with Harriet that we didn't really need. No, and I think I think there might have been pressure to kind of, like, bring Harriet back or kind of, like, resolve certain elements about her story. I do think something that the book gets absolutely right is throughout this whole story, and you see it manifest with the parents, you see the way they're they're spending their one day off, like working relentlessly in this garden together. Um, thinking of books like Uplifting the Race and other stories that are about kind of like improvement circles in this time, there is so much tremendous pressure that Addie and her family feel, which is very much historically accurate of like, even the very little that they have, they need to do so much for others. Mm -hmm. Like they need to continue that. They need to give that back. And Reverend Drake and the AME church says, you know, that God will help people who help themselves. He's saying that. And he's also saying like, to me, that's a collective view of like, this is about group uplift. Yes. So even though there's tension with someone like a Harriet, um, who is sort of more probably like accommodationist and sort of like the the best face that this race can put forward is a rich person, right? Like a person who is achieving and like has military background. The pressure I think that the parents feel like leaks out onto Addie in a way that like now that they've been together a minute is stronger. I think that's true. Yeah, I think that's true. That took us a lot of places, but like I do just keep thinking about it because in self-made, Madam C.J. Walker tries to get an endorsement from Booker T. Washington and his wife. And the reason she wants this is he is one of the most powerful voices who is traveling and is also connected, frankly, to white wealth. Like he has all these different connections and he basically says like makeup is frivolous or like this is not important. Like this isn't what um, you should be focusing on. But the language of his time and the culture that Addie is growing up in is that that's not what's going to uplift the race. And you see manifest in everything happening in this book that it's about uplift, um, the famous quotation, lifting as we climb. Like Addie's family is so in that pressure cooker. And when it was just her and her mother and the war was so uncertain, like you said, there was a tenderness there. Now there's what people imagine to be a, a moment, right? Like reconstruction is happening. Like this is it. People have to really take it on. And I think that's why the saves the day paradigm is just so weird. Yeah. And I think it also adds pressure that Addie is the first black American girl ever, mm -hmm. but also the first that we're reading because it does also bring out the tension to be exceptional broadly as a black girl. Like you see this on Twitter with black Twitter and like a lot of activism is like, it's not good enough to just be good enough. You have to be mm -hmm. better than everybody else to, air quotes, make it or, you know, survive in a society that really applauds white supremacism or re rewards it, especially in this time. So I think to me, like this idea that she saves the day and like does this exceptional thing, like she's described as running faster than everyone else to chase down this girl who has the carpet bag. They're like, you're faster than everyone. Like you like excelled in doing this, like only you could do this it adds more pressure. So it's like you have the pressure to uplift and to help in these networks you find yourselves in, in your community, but also you have this pressure to be as an individual, like exceptional. Mm. And it just feels like a lot. And I know we're reading a lot into it, but it, I do think kind of like where there's smoke, there's fire with that, with these ideas. Yeah. Like, I think it struck both of us reading it. And it just, I don't know, it just felt like a whole lot of pressure. I don't – so I don't know what kind of relationship Connie Porter and Quentin Tarantino have. Hear me out. What? <laughs> so I don't know – I don't know what their relationship is. Like, I'll say that. 
But the basic premise of Pulp Fiction is friends trying to get a suitcase, bag, valise, carpet bag, whatever, back. Okay. They came out in the same time. Wow. I mean... Is there a connection? I mean, I'm open to it. I mean, I will say there's considerably less swearing in one of these. Which one? (laughs) Yeah, fair. Um, Wow. I didn't realize they were the same year. Do you have other points of connection? So, I mean, I think there's, like, in some ways, like, there's too many to really delve into too deeply. Okay. Like, I was thinking about this as a text, and I was thinking about, like, gardening, right? And so one of the things about Pulp Fiction is, like, it's staring you right in the face. Like, you have the prevalence of orange juice. You have the prevalence of, like, naturally grown foods in Pulp Fiction. Sure. Here we open with a gardening scene. I'm... I'm just saying there's wow. a – but I think, like, the most shocking thing to me is, like, the centrality of, like, getting back a stolen suitcase I think is too big to be ignored. Mm-hmm. I also feel like the fact that Forrest Gump came out at the same time and Oof. the importance of the plotline of Lieutenant Dan's disability acquired in war, it's the same story. No, I'm saying it's the same story, Mary. Wow. Um, I'm not saying that Addie and her family always have 420 on the clock as it is in Pulp Fiction, but I'm not going to not say that. I mean, I haven't seen any of their clocks depicted in the illustrations we've had so far. Yeah. So I can't like troubleshoot this for you, but I'm intrigued. Thank you. Um, I won't get into this because like this podcast is is not, you know, like two hours long. There are fascinating theories about like Tarantino's relationship to history and the way that he has like rewritten the course of human events over the last 160 years in his films. And he has obviously done a film about the American West that includes like an alternative retelling of slavery. I'm not saying it's all there, but it's there. So any rate, I do think part of what, what also ties these two things together is like, this book is about Addie getting the money back, and it's not. In the same way that Pulp Fiction is about a missing suitcase, and it's not. Right. And I think where, like, we have held this up with such high praise is the texture of the characters and their relationships to each other. Like, people don't watch Pulp Fiction for the same reason that they watch, um, what's the show Meghan Markle was open? Suits? Where they open the su- suit. Oh, no. Deal or No Deal? Deal or No Deal, where we're opening a su- Like, who cares yeah. what's in it, right? It's a metaphor. Um. At the same time, it's like, okay, she got the money back. I don't know what to do. Well, it's like, what's the point of this? Because to me, it's like, okay, you stole, like, so a black girl took money from an event that was meant to fundraise for black nonprofits. Yeah. How would, how do we know that she wasn't going to circulate that stolen money into similar networks to solve similar problems in the community? Like, we don't. We don't. We don't. So, I don't know. It just, it invites more questions than it answers, I guess, which is sometimes the case of good literature. But I think in this case, like, I think in talking about, like, the pressure to be exceptional, I'm wondering if we applied the same thing to Connie. Like, we, we expected her, or, like, we put pressure on her to be exceptional. So, in some ways, it's a relief to have a book that's not. Because it's like, it shows in some ways like how this is really part of this larger franchise that insists on a narrative of progress or a vision of girlhood mm-hmm. that literally fails everyone because of this like book five trope. It's true. It's true. And I will say we've had people write to us about what Connie Porter has meant in their lives. Mm-hmm. And way back, um, a woman named Ashley from Detroit wrote to us and actually shared photos of her meeting Connie Porter. Oh, wow. And so, like, we actually have a pretty thick file, which doesn't mean you should stop sending them, of people meeting Valerie Tripp because that woman was, like, never not producing or on tour. yep. And I I will say also, we have never heard anything other than Valerie Tripp was so nice. She was, you know, all these things. Like, we always hear really good things about her. Um But this woman, Ashley, wrote to us some time ago, and she says, quote, The time where Addie came out was a big deal in my life slash community because it was one of the first times I felt represented by a girl my age during slavery. Um, And she shared this picture for us of her meeting Connie Porter with a group of girls, and she says it was a big to-do. I really recommend this article by... um, Nika O'Connor, and she wrote in Shondaland about meeting Connie Porter. 
And she says, quote, meeting Connie Porter felt as though my love and lore of books was blossoming, finally coming alive in the flesh. It was as if art came to life. I was nine years old, wearing a hunter green bodysuit underneath a black floral print skirt with suspenders. Coke bottle glasses hung down on my nose, and I pushed them up every so often. She smiled and signed the title page of the book. I still own those books today and can trace my finger over the grooves her signature indented in the page. Wow. So Connie Porter means a lot to people. And that's also why it's like, you know, even if you don't love every single page of a whole series, you know, just about everybody hated the end of Game of Thrones. Again, it I've doesn't mean not seen it, but I believe you on that one. Doesn't mean you didn't like cherish and love a lot of sure, things yeah, of course. about the series. Of course. I mean, I think everyone can point to some cultural product, artifact, whether it's a treasured book, an author, a musician, an album, a movie, whatever. And you both deeply love it, but also know that there are parts of it that are not, you know, maybe great or it's not, there is no perfect you know, work of art or cultural piece. So, but that doesn't really detract from you loving it. No, and I wanted to share one more comment from a listener named Kayla. We actually had a whole email exchange. She is also from Michigan. Um, It was so cool. She shared with us some of the work that she does at a historical society in Michigan and the way that she was inspired by American Girl to go into history to tell different kinds of stories. And she mentioned uh, that her institution is doing a lot on commemorations of World War II Hmm. and like really thinking critically about what – the home front experience was. And that got me thinking, obviously, about Molly and Victory Gardens. Mm. But I also was kind of thinking about comments and some things that Kayla shared with us because the power of Addie and her family getting to claim a plot of land in the city and being able to grow mm-hmm. something and kind of literally bring new things to life, it reminded me of the fact that in their old life, this is kind of an odd continuity they would have had a small garden plot for themselves that they could tend once a week and those things would be truly theirs. And I kind of wondered if, you know, in the same way that Victory Gardens were about sacrifice and and rallying, these are kind of a sort of Victory Garden for them Mm -hmm. because they have these like very, very small squares of earth where they're trying to like extract something meaningful Because for this family, like, the war really isn't over. I agree with you. I think that's a really great point. And in a way, it makes the the fact that so the parents return home after they plant the seeds and Addie wants to stay and water them. So I think this Mm -hmm. image of Addie watering the plot of land by herself, it's like she's claiming victory as, like, the next generation, like, truly not born in freedom, but who will get to come of age in freedom and claim that victory in a different way. Yeah, I think that's really powerful. And maybe that's why it hurts so bad when Harriet walks by and says, like, oh, you look you look you look like you're comfortable in a dirt patch. Right. You know? Yeah. I, I think there's like a meanness there that's kind of shocking. And again, you do wonder what kind of editorial decision pushed that, or maybe we just didn't get it, right? Yeah, and I think it was shocking too because the book kind of starts with an exposition recalling the plot so far in the series and kind of like taking you with Addie in her own head reliving like being in this plot of land and saying to herself at one point like this reminds me of slavery, Mm. but obviously so much has changed. So she's kind of going on this like, wow, look how far I've come path. So then to have like your enemy, your bully come and articulate, you know, this trauma that you're reliving in your head, like, oh, you look like you haven't traveled far at all. You look just the same. When in her own head, she was just taking us on this trajectory, like, look how far I've come. That's true. That same listener, she said something really powerful to us. She says, you know, when she was younger, she actually didn't really connect with Addie as much. It felt kind of like it was forced on her. And that's something that other people have have said. And she says, I now see Addie as emblematic of the ways we can use fiction to tell the realities of racism. And I think maybe one of the layers of that that requires a little bit more sitting with is there's a kind of racism that Harriet is also displaying, right? Like Harriet has been trained to think that because her family was always free, 
she's better. And so in some ways, like I think part of Harriet's struggle, if we want to build empathy for her, is she's been trained to believe that she's better, right? Like she's part of this talented portion of society that's freer. At the same time, like Addie kind of obviously is better at everything than her Mm -hmm. and people like her better. So again, it's that perfect collision of like cultural reality and childhood fickleness. She's like, well, wait a minute. I'm supposed to be better. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think something that's interesting to reflect on, too, is so the peek into the past, as I mentioned, covers 50 topics like it's it's a sprint, you know, and it starts with like, you know, city infrastructure, changing layouts of cities, segregation in the north, playgrounds, swimming, baseball, relaxation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the things they talk about is monuments and mm-hmm. um, this idea that after the war, there was this move to kind of memorialize not just well-known figures, which was a long time practice, but also kind of the experience of so-called like everyday soldiers. But, you know, in current, there's a lot of debates about monuments now, obviously, and what's the ideal shape that they should take. And some people are in favor of like living monuments. So not just necessarily like creating statues to veterans, but maybe like putting more money into their health care. Um, so, you know, thinking about policy or how we um, spend time or money as a monument. And I was kind of reflecting on that, thinking about Addie and her family, that like Addie in a way is a monument, like her life trajectory is kind of a monument to the struggles of her family and everything that's gone on in a way that Harriet's life is not. Mm. And kind of so kind of like how commemoration would look different for both of their families. It makes you think about how little recognition has been given to I don't want to say really the Freedmen's Bureau because that has its own politics, but Mm -hmm. like how little space has been made to think about something like her version of Victory Garden or the way that her family supported. Mm -hmm. Um, Like you think about not just the financial impact, but the overall cultural impact of a group of people, um, not just self-liberating, but Mm self-supporting. And, you know, someone just came out and and we can link to it. It's a really good study, but a really pathbreaking study of how most land-grant institutions um, were not just taken from stolen land from indigenous groups, but also bankrolled by them. Even Mm. places like University of Connecticut, it was dividends made off of um, what they called Indian Wars. We'll have to link to the piece. But thinking about the ways that institutions like HBCUs, people would often tout how much like external support or philanthropic financing went into them, but really they were self-made by people. Like, I think that's why that series is called self-made. It's like, she had to actually do this all herself and that's not really recognized. Like if you do learn about reconstruction at all, you learn about legislation mostly passed by white people or a few exceptional men in office when like, that garden is just as much part of that story. So I went on this spree where I was reading Philadelphia newspapers, initially looking for coverage of Lincoln's funeral train, but then I got just interested in a bunch of different things. And I found an article about in 1867, Frances Harper um, was giving a speech in Philadelphia and she was um, a black woman abolitionist, uh, suffrage advocate, but also was heavily involved in the WCTU, which is an organization mm. near and dear to your heart as a temperance researcher these days. <laughs> um, so I, but I wanted to read just the last stanza of a poem she wrote in 1858 um, called Bury Me in a Free Land. And this actually appears at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture, which I have not been to, but you have. Um, and it simply reads, I ask no monument proud and high to arrest the gaze of the passers-by. All that my yearning spirit craves is bury me not in a land of slaves. Hmm. And so it kind of gets at this idea before the end of the Civil War about what a monument might look like to yeah. African Americans and Black culture. And for the speaker of this poem, it's to not be buried you know, in a place that has slavery. But what does it mean then to make your life a monument like what does it mean then to live in a place that was a land of slavery like at this point all of the united states had had slavery at some point how do you define freedom in light of that the trauma of that past and i think that's kind of what these books are speaking to as well i wish we could meet addy at 25 yeah what do you think she'd be doing 
So if she's born in 1855, be 1880, I think she would be a club woman. I think she would be mm-hmm. heavily involved in a lot of different causes. And I think, and, and again, part of why this book might feel like a slight detour for a variety of reasons. I think Addie is exceptionally good at noticing injustice and, and rallying people around it. And she's very good at talking to people who are different ages. Like she's a good friend to Sarah. She gets along with her teacher. She's tight with Madeir. And she knows how to kind of make people feel a way about something. She's a good writer, you know, all those Mm -hmm. kinds of things. Um, So I would love to meet her at like 25, 35. I think she would be in a kind of marriage like Ida B. Wells Barnett, where it's like, you can marry me, but, like, you need to understand that, like, you're not it. Like, I have a career. Like, I write yeah. in newspapers. Like, we're going to be on the road. Um, Like, you need to understand that. I think we've joked about this before, but I think she would protest the Columbian Exposition. 100%. I will say a wonderful Connie fact that I learned in this supplemental is she notes that she was four when JFK was assassinated. She says, I saw his death upset my parents the way Addie saw the news of President Lincoln's death upset adults. Unlike Addie, I was too young, but I knew something bad had happened. I love that. It's a very nice parallel. Yeah. I mean, and I think that is a way of saying, like, when you have these national traumas, like, if you're a child, you filter them through, like, how your parents react to them. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, Absolutely. I'm sure that probably listeners of ours, if their parents or so grew up around that period, they probably have memories of it, not of them being aware of the assassination, but like seeing adults react. But absolutely, my aunt like responded to this by she saw my grandmother crying. And then everywhere she went, Caroline and John John became her imaginary friends. And she'd be like, move over. We have to have room for them in the car. Like they became their constant companions. And that's just how she like processed it. I love Uh, that. It was, you know, tough times. Also, like, the thing I keep returning to, and this is goes from heartwarming or emotional to, like, I guess gross, but everybody knows the Civil War was kind of when a bombing jumped off. But when you read about the funer- Lincoln funeral train, it's like this man's body was on the road for, like, a month plus with open yeah. casket viewings. It's like that didn't end great. No, but I think it's part of the greater m- mythos of Lincoln of – he wasn't cute. That's we'll agree to disagree on that one. But I think I think part of it is like he was striking, right? Yes. Like he's like certain Agreed. celebrities where like there is a look and a feel about him because he was so shockingly tall and gangly. Sure. You know, I think there's something to that of like the humanity. And people people probably had a, a different relationship to being around disgusting dead bodies, you know? I mean, like, let's hope. I don't know. Yeah. I mean. I mean, from here, it's like, where do you go but up? I think Addie gets a sled, question mark. I have no idea where we're going with this, but I hope it's, you know, (laughs) please stop trying to save stuff. You don't need to. You have enough going on. Be kind to yourself. No, and I think that's probably the difference between, like, you know, growing up in, like, a Nancy Drew, Bobsy Twins world Pleasant Company was like, we need to make these girls heroes. And I think now it's like, my new mantra is like, get through the day. That's enough. Yeah, that's where I'm at too. Yes. I think there's something right about saying like people who put their lives on the line to take care of other people are heroic. But I think a lot of the hero discourse is like, oh, we don't want to actually like pay you well or protect you, but you're a hero. Right. Like it cuts off other conversations. So I think maybe that's part of our hyper specific reaction to this right now. Well, yeah. And I think that's spot on because it's kind of like late stage capitalism. Like if you call someone a hero, it decouples them from conversations about commodifying their labor and, you know, paying them appropriately in the same way that. Like calling Addie a hero, as you're saying, like kind of distracts you from the fact that she was a commodity. And in fact, in Philadelphia, her family's labor is not being commodified in an equitable way. So like someone write her a check enough. Like this whole show did not need to. Happen. No, <laughs> like write her a check. I don't know. <laughs> We're done with this. Like it's just it's too much. And I'm really stressed out that they won't possibly make enough off vegetables. Like no, I just I don't know, I know what that is. I don't know what the price point, but like. I know. 
it's someone help us it is stressful like i don't know now by the time this enters the world we don't know what kind of stage any of us will be in sure but if people want to send you like something uplifting if they have an addy question if they're like you know what here's a gardening tip how should they find you Well, first, I will tell people how to find me, but I do just want to acknowledge (laughs) um, all the people that have reached out to both of us in the last couple of days with very kind messages when it was announced that we're actually writing a book, which we are. We have not talked about, but because we couldn't really, but uh, we're both very excited about this. Yes. And we want to say congratulations to our editor, which is very exciting to say. Her name is Kat and her sister reached out. They are both listeners. Um, Kat just had a baby, which is very exciting. Yes. Um, And we also want to say thank you to Lauren, who is our agent, who has been amazing through this process. Exactly. And also to her two dogs, Elvis and Gracie, (laughs) even though she claims she likes one better, we're both... (gasps) We're going to shout you both out. I, hopefully I the know. dogs don't listen. Like, just I don't, put earmuffs on the do. dogs at this time. If you have some noise-canceling <laughs> headphones, please, for the safety of these dogs. We're all going through enough. But um, if you have Love Island UK hot tips, if you know, yes. and a few of you have reached out with places where I can access Murder, Shiro, unfortunately, all of them hinge on me having cable, which I don't. Mm. But thank you so much. It means the world when people – if people write to us, we write you back. Sometimes it takes me a minute, but we write everybody back – my Instagram is at Mimi Mahoney. My Twitter is at Mary Mahoney123. And Allison, should people have hot takes on top magicians, I guess? Like if there's other fellow magic fans? <laughs> and, you know, how can they apparate into your inbox? So they can reach me at Allison Horrocks on all the things. And they can reach the show at American Girls Podcast on Instagram. They can tweet at us at a girl's pod. Um, people especially have some good quarantine hot takes. And then American Girls Podcast at Gmail is another way to reach us. We love when you leave us voicemails. We love when you send us. I love when people send us videos over DM. So those are always welcome. Wow. Powerful stuff. Yes. Yeah. I love hearing from people. It's so fun. Um, so, you know, making this show is a very healthy distraction for us during an otherwise very stressful time. Uh, and, you know, so we just do appreciate you guys hanging out with us, spending time with us, you know, and we know it's probably a crazy time for you too. So again, as Allison mm-hmm. said, we, we don't know what state the world will be in when next we appear, but until then, stay until safe, then. be kind to yourself, and we'll see you soon. Thank you.